Welcome to the last chapel of the semester. I'm glad you're here. We have a bunch of nurses at a nursing chapel celebrating the successful return of nursing students from Zambia. But I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad I get to be here with you. You ready? I hope I am too. I need your help today because Patty and I disagree on something, and I need you to help us decide which one of us is right. Think you can do that? Yeah, somebody says Patty's always right. You don't even need to hear the story. Patty's always right. So I know I'm right on the facts of the story, but what I'm not sure about is how we should feel about it. And I had this, I'll tell the story, and I expected a reaction, and she expects a completely different reaction, so we're going to see how it works. It's a story from my childhood. I grew up in the inner city of Chicago, and my dad had a job that required a fair amount of travel, and so when it came time to get the Christmas tree, we didn't always get the Christmas tree up early in the season. Sometimes it was a little late. We didn't have one stored in the basement that was artificial. We went and actually got a, bought a Christmas tree, but we lived in the inner city of Chicago, so we didn't go out to the woods and cut a tree down, and we didn't go to a Christmas tree farm and cut it down. What we did is go to the corner of Chicago Avenue and Laramie Avenue, and there was a Old, an empty lot there that some guy turned into a Christmas tree vending place during Christmas season. And we got there late in the season. And so it was already a little picked over. And my dad was raised in the Depression and we weren't, were a bit economically challenged. So when we went there, we didn't go to the high end of the lot where the blue spruce were and stuff. We went to the Scotch pine section. We went to the cheap tree section. Now listen, when you combine cheap tree section with economically challenged, you don't get a very good selection. It's late in the season, you know, you'd get there, you'd stand the tree up and the trunks would be crooked and the, they wouldn't be very full and we did the best we could and we brought it home and then we put it in a tree stand in the corner of the living room and sometimes it was a challenge to even make the thing stand up since the trunk was so crooked. So dad would wrap a wire around it and we'd tie it to an eyelet that was screwed into a window frame and into the fireplace just so it wouldn't fall down while we decorated it. And then sometimes it was a little thin and dad was known to cut tree branches off the back of the tree that was into the corner and drill holes in the trunk in the front of the tree and, and stick branches in to fill it out. And then we decorated it with a combination of homemade ornaments and store-bought ornaments and that was the Bray Christmas. Now here's what Patty thinks. She thinks it makes my dad sound a little grinchy. That he didn't care enough about Christmas to, to, to do the tree thing early. Here's what I think. I think it's quirky and funny. And when I was telling the story, I'm thinking, we're going for funny today. And she says, no, they think your dad's just a, a kind of a grinchy miser kind of guy. So we're going to have a vote. How many think Patty is right? <laughs> oh, oh. How many think I'm right? Yeah. Wow. We need to preserve the video of this chapel. It's so rare that I'm right in these instances. Every family has their Christmas traditions. In our family, our, my brother and sister and I always made a Christmas wish list, what we wanted. We listed the various presents that we wanted. We gave it to our folks. And uh, as I told you, we were a bit economically challenged. And so 
we didn't get a lot of different presents that were good. We got one good present every Christmas. They always gave it to us last. But they wanted us to have presents. So they wrapped up stuff that we'd normally just go to Walmart and get or, or just go to Target and get. And you'd, and you'd put it under the tree and you'd open it. And like I'm 10 years old and the first present I open is socks. But not, not decorative Christmas kind of socks. Just socks. Black socks. And I'm there, and you go, oh, man, socks. Mom, thanks, I needed socks. And you'd express with great enthusiasm that you got socks. And then the next present would be underwear. No 10-year-old wants underwear for Christmas. But, but you're there, you go, Mom, thanks, I needed underwear. Wow, thanks so much. And what I, what I learned is that it's possible to say things that don't really reflect the reality of our lives. Because I really wasn't thankful for underwear. And I really wasn't thankful for socks. But I said it because it seemed the appropriate thing to say. I want you to hang on to that thought for a little bit. Today, we end a semester where we have been talking about the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son... Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know that verse. The very first sermon of the semester came from 1 John chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God for that's what we are. Maybe the simplest statement about God that you can find in the whole Bible is in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8. Where it says God is love. It's clear the from the Bible that God loves us. We sing a lot of songs about the love of God. The, the, the one that jumped into my mind first was, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It goes on to say, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you gave yourself away. Oh, the never-ending, overwhelming, reckless love of God. Christian music is full of songs like that. But you know what it's not full of? It's not full of songs about us declaring our love for God. So I asked some of our worship team members that work in the chapel, I, I'd say, you know, give me some songs about us loving God. And, and the first one that they came up with, that separately they came up with in common, was, was written actually about 40 years ago by a lady named Lori Klein. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. To worship you, oh, my soul rejoice. Some of you sang that. You sing it here once in a while. You sang it in your home churches. And, um, and then they came up with a more recent one by Bethel Worship. Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. You are the one our hearts adore. You get past that. And they began to scratch their heads and go to the Internet on their phones trying to find songs about our love for God. We sing lots of songs about God's love for us, and there's not nearly as much about our love for him. And that leads me to a question I want to pose to you today. What does it mean to love God, to love God back? I mean, if God loves us, and the Bible is clear that he does, our response is to love him as well. But what does that mean? In our culture, love is often connected to a feeling. Have you noticed that? Come, if you date someone for long enough, there comes a time when there's something bubbling up within you and you want to say, I love you. But if you're not sure what the response coming back is, it's a bit nervous. 
Because what if you say, I love you, and she just leaves you hanging there? Doesn't respond back the same way? That's a bad moment. Or what if you say to him, I love you, and he says, well, I don't really feel that way about you. I mean, you just kind of want to die in that moment. But, <laughs> but, but if you get to that point where you say, I love you, and you get that, I love you too, I mean, there's a gush of happy hormones and, and, and all's right with the world, whether everything is right with the world or not, because, I mean, that, it's just how it's supposed to be. But we use the love word in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we use it to talk about infatuation. It's that early attraction that sometimes grows into something more or, or sometimes fades. Sometimes we use the word to talk about sexual desire. Sometimes we talk about it in, in, in deep friendship. You know, you see a couple of guys bump fists. I love you, bro. And, but you got to just bump fists because you don't want to be weird about it. Or, or you might even grab them by the hand and bring them in for a hug and give them a pat on the back too, maybe. Boom, boom. But not more than that. It's a friendship kind of thing. You get a new car. I love my car. I love my dog. I love pizza. I don't want to make out with pizza, but I love pizza. <laughs> I wasn't sure about that line. <laughs> and sometimes we use the word to describe a deepening and growing commitment and devotion to another person. We use the word love lots of different ways. But in our American culture, it just seems to keep coming back again and again and again to the idea of feeling. So what happens when somebody asks you, do you love God? Some of us immediately say, oh, I love God. He's awesome. And you know, we're, we're excited about it. And some of us go, well, yeah, because we know we should. But we don't know quite what we feel. And we, we guess we do. So how do you know if you do or not? Patty, would you come and help me? You told a story a couple weeks ago that I want you to, to, to yeah, this Patty Bracey is yeah, all now, that. Yeah, now, now you clap. Now you give her props, huh? <laughs> what yeah. about five minutes ago? So tell us about that time so the girls, girls got dressed. So our girls were in high school and they were getting ready for a dance. And they'd gone out to get, I think it was Sadie Hawkins' dresses. And they came back into the family room and they... They tried their dresses on. John was in a different room, and I was standing there looking at him, and I went, oh, my goodness. I love them. They're beautiful. You are beautiful. I cannot believe how much I love those dresses and how gorgeous you are in them. And I went on for probably two months, two, two minutes. <laughs> uh, no one of our girls are a little warped. They're my, <laughs> two months. And then um, we all three said, Let's go see what dad says, shall we? All three of us knowing exactly what was going to happen. They paraded in front of their dad, and he said, Nice. <laughs> Real nice. <laughs> and we cracked up because those are the words we knew he was going to say because we're so different in temperament. <laughs> Thanks, Patty. So now each of us thought the dresses were great and we thought the girls looked good in them. 
but we're wired differently. If you sit in the student section at basketball games, we're sitting behind the bench a few rows up, and uh, when a basket gets scored, I look over to see how many points the guy or the woman, or which, whichever it is, has now, and, and uh, I want to see how many fouls they have, and I might analyze the play, and Patty's sitting there going, Woo! <laughs> Have you seen that? If you haven't come to a game and you will see it, Patty is a fan with enthusiasm. You know, I think our different reactions are part of the struggle in answering the question, do you love God or not? Because some of us are really emotive. Some of us are emotional. We connect with it. You ask, do you love God? And you go, whoo! Some of us go, well, the nice, real nice people go, yeah, I, I guess. It's harder to know how to answer. So I want to take a few minutes today and talk about what the Bible might actually say about how can you know if you really love God or not. And I want to warn you, just because you feel that you do, it doesn't necessarily mean that you love God biblically. And just because you don't feel like it, maybe, it doesn't mean you don't love God biblically. And so I'm going to put a biblical test to the answer of how do you know you love God or not. Can we do that? So where we're going to find ourselves scripturally is in the 14th chapter, the 13th and 14th chapter of John for most of the rest of the sermon. And it's to set it for you in the stage of Christ's life. It's the last night before he is betrayed and crucified. By, by this time tomorrow, he'll be on a cross. He's in the upper room. John spends five chapters talking about those few hours together. And it's like, guys, you need to understand, we've been together three years, but I'm nailing this down in your life. I'm hammering it home in your life. So you remember, because it's what's all that important. And this is what he says about us. John 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And in case anyone missed it, six verses later, he says, whoever loves has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And in case anyone missed it, two verses later, he says, anyone who loves me will keep my teaching. And in case anyone missed it, one verse later, he flips it over and says, anyone who does not love me does not obey my teaching. And in case anyone missed it, five paragraphs later, he says, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Did you see the common theme? What's the word that kept being repeated and repeated and repeated? Obey the commands. Obey the, if you love me, you'll obey what I tell you to do. The measure of our love for God is not that you can stand and sing in passionate worship. The measure of our love for God is not that you engage yourself in deep Bible study and devotion and commitment to that. Both of those things are good, and each of those things is more natural for some people than for other people. But according to Jesus, the critical measure of do we love God or not is whether we are obeying the commands he has given us. Remember I said earlier a thought that I asked you to hang on to? I said it's possible to say things that don't reflect the reality of our lives. I said that about underwear on Christmas morning. And I think it's possible for us to not, to say I love God and yet it not really reflect the reality of our lives. It's possible that we can get all the multiple choice answers in a New Testament survey class right about Jesus and still not love him. Jesus says the measure of our love for him is not whether we know the right answers and it's not what we feel and it's not what we know. It's 
how we obey. Now, if we're sincerely trying to be Christ followers, then there's a logical next step in response to this idea. And it's to do a quick survey of the way we actually live. It's not just to hear a sermon, but let me ask you the question. Are there things you're doing in real life that you know you should be not doing? That aren't biblically obedient and yet you're doing them anyway? Are there some things in your life that might dishonor God? Are there things the Holy Spirit has nudged you about that you should be doing that you're not doing? It's obedience or lack of it. Your obedience to the commands of Christ demonstrates the realities of the word you say about loving him. And that's sobering if you get right down to it because a lot of times we don't pay much attention in our lives. We just say, well, I love God and I'm a Christian and I, yeah, I'm a Christ follower, but the question is, would he look at you and say, you're following closely to the commands I've given you? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him fully. Give yourself fully to obedience. Now we have some time left in the sermon. I want to look at one other um, metric about loving God, how we might measure our love for him. We're back, let's go back to the upper room with Jesus. He's nailing down for the disciples this. Here's, guys, what you need to know. It's, it's, it's the end of the, their time with them. They're about ready to graduate, if you, if you think about it that way. And in John 13, 34, he says, A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And in case anyone missed it, a few minutes later in John 15, 12, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And in case anyone missed it, five verses later, he says, this is my command, love each other. And in case anyone thinks that this is just a momentary itch that Jesus is trying to scratch, years later, maybe 50 years later, the apostle John, who was in the upper room with Jesus, writes this in 1 John chapter 4. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So the second critical measurement of whether we love God or not is how well we love the other person. Let me help you here. This isn't talking about being all emotional and gushy towards them. It's not, it's not that hormone surge when you get with, infa with infatuation or flirting. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his brother or for his sister. You sacrifice. You live to meet the needs of others. You put them first. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to a church that is struggling with relational issues and struggling with obedience and he talks about love in one of the most famous passages in in literature even people who don't acknowledge the bible look at it and say wow this is amazing let's take a look at it i'm, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it love is patient are you patient with others or do you just get irritated with them really easily Love is kind. Do you care about others? Do you actually show it in the way you live? It's not just saying, I feel kind. It's I act in a kind way. I, I'm intentional in how res I respond to you. Love doesn't envy. Do you ever find yourself jealous about what other people have? Whether it's some, you know, they, they get the new iPhone 
10 SGJFQ? Or what, you know, I mean, they're always coming out with new iPhones. Or they have a relationship that you're jealous of. Love cheers for them and is not jealous of them. Love doesn't boast. Are you secure enough in who you are that you don't have to keep reminding people of your importance? That you don't have to keep boasting of your accomplishments? I tell you, this is one where where I have to be careful because um, I've got lots of good stories. And when you tell a story, I have one that can top it. Or at least I think I do. And I realize that's an ego kind of thing for me to step in. And some, sometimes I just have to bite my tongue and be quiet and let you have your moment instead of boasting about mine. It's not proud. Is your ego under control? Or do you think you're always right? It doesn't dishonor others. It's not rude. I think sometimes we take pride in our bluntness. I just say it the way it is. And that's not a love reaction. It's not easily angered. <clears throat> how quickly our tempers flash sometimes. And we think, well, it's just, just how I'm wired. But Jesus doesn't say how... It's not easily angered unless you're easily angered. He just says you treat the other person with enough respect that you choose to give them grace where you want grace as well. Keeps no record of wrongs. Do you hold grudges? Do you find yourself in a moment of tension, not just dealing with the issue right there that's creating the situation, but going back a week or two weeks or three weeks and say, well, you always do this and you did this then and you did this then and you did this then and bringing out the whole load of baggage that you're carrying. Maybe you even said, I forgive you before, but you didn't really because you hang on to it. It doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes. It always perseveres. It just never quits. It keeps going and going and offering the very best of itself to the other person. Now the list of feet of measurement that Paul gives us is not a list of feelings. It doesn't say love feels kind. It doesn't say love feels patient. It's a list of attitudes and behaviors we choose to have out of our desire to honor Christ. I choose to be kind. I choose to be patient. I choose to keep my temper. I choose not to boast. I choose to be giving to the other person. What does it mean to love God? Hmm. It means to obey his commands and love the other guy. It is as simple and as complex as that. Here's one last question. How does your life stack up against Scripture? It's not enough just to hear a sermon. The Bible says don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. How does your life stack up against Scripture? And if there are gaps, let me challenge you today to repent. To ask God to forgive you. To ask God to melt your heart so that you're so amazed by his overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love 
that your natural response is to say, God, because of your love for me, I love you back. And I'm going to show it by how I obey and how I love others. In Christ's name. Can I pray for you? Lord, I thank you for the wonderful privilege of serving you. I'm thankful for the wonderful privilege of gathering together in chapel again and again and again to have a nudge forward in our lives. Lord, this is Christmas season, a time when we naturally think of the gift of your life for us. But I would pray you would help us think of our lives as a gift to return. In full surrender, in full obedience, loving when we don't necessarily feel like loving, giving when we don't necessarily feel like living, obeying when we don't necessarily feel like obeying as the evidence that we love you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.